Well, in 2016, uh, an astronaut aboard the International Space Station shared this photo. Uh, it's a gouge in the window of the International Space Station, about half a centimetre across. Now, that might seem small, but a gouge like that can easily turn into something catastrophic, particularly if you're out in space. This was caused by what they suspected may have been a fleck of paint which had come off a nearby satellite, no greater than a few thousandths of a millimetre across. Right, that's an incredible amount of damage caused by something no bigger than the thickness, right, not, not, not the length, but the thickness of a red blood cell. In space, things hurtle along at ridiculous speeds and the velocity of a microscopic fleck of paint, something seemingly so small, can cause an incredible amount of damage. Well, today as we think through 1 Corinthians 5, we see a very stark warning from Paul that just like a tiny fleck of debris in space has the potential to cause catastrophic damage, Paul argues that even a tiny amount of unchecked, overlooked sin can wreak havoc in the church. And yet for the Corinthians, as we'll soon see, the matter was far worse than simply unchecked sin. Uh, They weren't just turning a blind eye to sin. Uh, The Corinthians, it seems, were actively endorsing it. They were giving their tick of approval to overt sin. And this brings us to point one. If you have your outlines there, uh, there's room to make notes. We're up to point one. The Corinthian church is proud of their sins. Now, if there's something for you to be proud of, uh, my advice to you is don't make it about your sin. Uh, And yet here in 1 Corinthians 5, this is the first thing Paul highlights in this chapter. He's heard yet another report from them. And this is about an extreme kind of sexual immorality going on within the church. But what makes this report mind-boggling, off the charts in fact, is that this type of sexual immorality is a type that shocked even secular society. Uh, Even the pagans don't tolerate the type of thing that's going on here. Now, for the Corinthian church, to put this into context, that's really saying something. Because Corinth, uh, little did you, well, I'm not sure if you knew this fact or not, but they were famous for their sexual freedom and their promiscuity. In fact, Corinth itself uh, was the home of the goddess of love, Aphrodite. And she had a temple right at the top which towered over the city. And this temple, it housed heaps and heaps of sacred prostitutes, effectively. And they would come off the mountain at night and ply their trade. This city, it had other things as well, that's that's the main one going on, but the city effectively was dedicated to the glorification of sex. And when we understand this, how sex-obsessed this city really was, then when we read Paul's claim that not even the pagans tolerate the type of sexual activity going on in the church, that the church's standards are lower than the standards even of Corinth, then we realise something terrible must be going on here. So what exactly was this sin? Uh, If you read with me in verse 1, Paul writes, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. It's pretty wild. Now, this behaviour, it's prohibited both in Jewish law. There's a few places I could cite for you. 
But according to Paul, it's frowned upon even by secular standards as well. Uh, It's amazing to me that that there seem to be unwritten rules about sex in a place as free and as permissive as Corinth. Even they have their limits. However, the real clincher here uh, is more than this. The real news is not the fact that the church is tolerating this kind of behaviour, but they seem to be proud of it, like it's a badge of honour for the church. If you keep reading with me, uh, Paul says, A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are so proud. In fact, if you skip down to verse 6, they're not just proud of it, but they're boasting about it. So they're not just turning a blind eye. They're not just going, nothing to see here, you know, move along, move along. No, they're boasting as if this is some kind of epic, supreme level of tolerance that they have. This sexual freedom they have, they think it's something worth boasting about. Look at how tolerant we are as a church. We don't judge here. We, we only love, we only welcome people. So come, come and join us. All the while, even secular society looks on in shock. It's really amazing when you consider what's going on. And so as we read on, uh, Paul, he shuts down this misguided arrogance very quickly. Uh, in verse 2, he says, Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who has been doing this? You should be weeping over this sin, Paul says. You shouldn't be proud. You should be in tears over this stuff. But more than this, uh, and this is the difficult one for even us to hear, Paul says that you should even put this man out of fellowship. And we balk when we hear that kind of stuff. Uh, It is hard to hear. We might ask, uh, when is it even appropriate to begin thinking about doing something like this with people at church? I mean, the old mantra, aren't we meant to be a hospital for sinners? We're not a museum for saints. Well, hold that thought because kind of like beating the horse while it's down, believe it or not, Paul doesn't stop there. He continues uh, even further in verse 3, saying he's already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus, the one that's been doing this. And so you may have been with me up until that point, but, but when you hear this, some of you might be thinking, whoa, 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 slow down. I was with you, but this is a mile too far. We're not meant to judge anyone. In fact, didn't Jesus even say, do not judge or you too will be judged? What's going on here? Is Paul contradicting the very words of Jesus? And I mean, what he's doing, it seems pretty harsh. Look at what he's saying. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. How do we make sense of this extreme level of judgment by Paul, especially in light of Jesus' own words? Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Well, the first thing to note is context. When we read the Bible, context is everything. If you don't have a context, then you don't really have a passage. It can be very hard to apply it. And without a context, you can twist the Bible into saying just about anything. And the context here, when we look at Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 1, well, he can't be saying that all judgments of any kind are forbidden. Because later in Matthew 7, Jesus does tell us to discern false prophets from true. And he tells us to discern them by their fruit even. So this idea of not judging lest we be judged, it's not saying don't show discernment. Right? It's not saying, don't use your brain. 
Rather, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 is don't pronounce a final judgment, right? Don't pronounce a judgment on someone's eternal welfare. Don't pretend to know God's judgment or his ultimate verdict on someone's life because that's his job, not yours. So Jesus is warning us here in Matthew 7 to be careful not to pronounce eternal judgments on someone because that's his job, not ours. And so when we realise this, the question for our passage tonight becomes, what is Paul doing uh, in Corinthians 5? Is he pronouncing a final judgment upon someone? Is he pronouncing a verdict on this man? Well, amazingly, not quite. As harsh as it sounds to say, uh, when he says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, Paul doesn't, if you look carefully, pronounce a final judgment on this person. Uh, In fact, he leaves this wide open. He he leaves open the possibility for this man's salvation, saying, hand him over so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. It's really amazing when you consider all this, how much authority Paul exerts in this passage, while at the same time knowing that the ultimate judgment should be left in the hands of God alone. And that includes even the worst of sinners. Nevertheless, Paul does say to put this man out of the church. And when he says this, I think it's another way of saying out from uh, the protection that church provides, out from the protection that we have when we're in fellowship uh, and in communion with God's people. Yeah, it's, it is a strange phrase, hands men over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Um, But I don't think when we read that we're meant to see anything too mysterious or mystical. I think Paul is simply saying that the church, right, this is the domain of God, and so to release him from it for a time is to release him from the church's protection. And the reason he gives is for the destruction of his flesh. Now, again, there's another head-scratcher, another weird phrase, the destruction of his flesh. What does this mean? Does does this mean he's sending him out to die? Is he actually pronouncing some kind of final judgment on him? Uh, I don't think so. Because once again, uh, Paul, he doesn't say the destruction of his body, his physical body. So two verses before this point, Paul speaks about his bodily absence from the Corinthians. He says, I'm not there with you in person, but I'm still pronouncing a judgment. Um, But in this time, in in this phrase, he he doesn't talk about the physical body. Rather, he uses a different word here, the word for flesh, uh, which so often in Paul's writings is understood as the sinful nature. So it's not saying hand him out for the destruction of his body. It's hand him out for the destruction of his sinful nature in the hopes that this might bring him to repentance. Now, still, this might sound extreme to many of us. Uh, Church discipline is not something we hear about every day, uh, especially in the modern church. But it should only be done, when when you think about church discipline, really the purpose of it is for an individual's repentance. It's for that and for the protection of the flock. And this brings us to point two. So Paul warns that unrepented sin affects the whole gathering. Now, if we think back to the opening illustration, uh, how something so small can cause so much damage, 
Well, here in verses 6 and 7, Paul, he uses another illustration, his own illustration, to make this point. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul argues here, uh, rightly, that it only takes the tiniest bit of yeast, right, the tiniest bit of, of unrepented sin being overlooked, to work its way through the whole batch. Now, some of you have probably picked up uh, in Paul's illustration when he talks about taking the yeast out, he also mentions Christ the Passover lamb. Uh, this is something that is an explicit reference to Exodus 12. Uh, in Exodus, if you remember, the there was this symbol of them not having time to bake bread with the yeast in it uh, because of the urgency of the situation they were in, uh, in escaping Egypt. They were awaiting God's judgment to pass over them before they escaped. But I think what's truly amazing about 1 Corinthians 5 uh, is that the Corinthian church, uh, filled with divisions, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, filled with strife and debauchery and, from what it seems here, unrepented sin even, is that this church, Paul is still confident, is covered by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb to some extent. The church is the real deal in Paul's mind, and he hasn't abandoned them. Christ the Passover lamb has been sacrificed for even them. That as dire as the situation looks like from the outside, get Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Paul continues and says, as you really are. He considers the Corinthian church a true church, a real church, despite all these things. But he does warn them extremely sharply that failing to deal with sin inside the church will be absolutely catastrophic for them. That failing to deal with even a small amount of unrepentant sin inside the church can cause massive problems for the whole gathering. So Paul, taking this as seriously as necessary, uh, says, get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of the unrepentant sinner from within your midst. Now the goal here, as I've covered it, it's both for the salvation of the sinner in 5.5. Paul is hoping this this dramatic action will bring the sinner to repentance, but it's also for the protection of the flock as well. And it's extremely important to remember both of those things. And I think here it's also important to remember that, that Paul, he's not pronouncing this final eternal judgment on the sinner. He's leaving that part up to God, as we all should. But he is taking an important, uh, yet extremely dramatic measures when the sin is brought to life to protect the church. Now, sometimes I think we, we sometimes are a bit too slow at calling people's sins out. Uh, we don't want to be judgmental when we see someone caught up in sin. Uh, for some of us, perhaps we're painfully aware of the log sticking out of our own eye, so we don't really want to go there, otherwise they might come back the same way. And yet, it is absolutely necessary that we do confess our sins. We must never become so comfortable with sin that it eventually starts to infect the church, that it eventually starts to rot the church from the inside out. 
Because if we do, then eventually we're prone to starting to call good evil and, and evil good. And this brings us to the final point. Paul warns that unrepentant sin affects the whole gathering. Therefore, don't tolerate even a small amount of unrepentant sin. Now, before we dive into this point, uh, before we move on, I want to add one note of clarity defining what I mean when I say unrepentance. Uh, This is a word we don't use all the time. So I want to give us a, a brief working definition here for us to understand what's going on. Unrepentance, uh, it's not referring to that sin that you continually struggle to overcome. That sin that you're constantly crippled with, that day in, day out seems to jump at you. Rather, unrepentant sin, it's defined as a sin which you've decided is either not serious enough to bother feeling bad about anymore, where your conscience is is perhaps hardened for one reason or another and so you justify it as something that's just an acceptable part of being human or whatever you want to say. Or perhaps it's something that you no longer think is a sin, full stop. And so we just accept this now. The church has moved on. You know, culture's moved on. Regardless of what the Bible says, things have changed. And so you call something that is a sin not a sin and all of a sudden it's okay. That's unrepentance. And if an entire church does this, or a denomination even, it is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. As per the title of this point, don't tolerate even a small amount of unrepentant sin. Don't ever get comfortable with sin. But there's another nuance worth highlighting here. Uh, Whenever they get comfortable with sin, specifically inside the church if we look at 1 corinthians 5 Uh, read with me from verse 9 paul says i wrote to you in my letter interesting by the way he says i wrote to you in my letter he's talking about a previous letter so first corinthians isn't actually his first letter to them i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people and here's the kicker he says not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral the people of this world who are greedy and, and swindlers or idolaters In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a slander, a drunkard, or a swindler. It's here that Paul wants to reassure the Corinthians that he's not asking them to undertake the Benedict option. He's not asking them to to shut themselves off from the world around them, to close themselves in. Otherwise, he says, they'd effectively have to hop on Elon Musk's starship and get a one-way ticket to Mars. They'd literally have to leave this world to not associate with them. Now, we're not to be scared of immoral people in the world. In fact, the opposite is true. We're meant to go to them with the gospel, with the good news that they can be saved from God's wrath, which burns like a raging fire against all ungodliness. Now, we can't cut ourselves off from this world without jeopardising Uh, To give a really obvious example, evangelism. Holding out the hope that we have in Jesus to a world that needs to hear it. And if we think about it, Paul, he understood this. He absolutely did, otherwise there wouldn't be a church in Corinth in the first place. If Paul looked at a place and he decided, oh, 
might avoid that one because it's a bit too debauched. It's a bit too far-stooped in sin. Well, then Corinth would have almost certainly been scratched off his itinerary. No, God's mission, it requires us to be in the world, not of the world. We're not meant to be transformed by the world. We're meant to be transformed by God's word. But we are meant to be in the world, rubbing shoulders with sinners and the unrighteous. Uh, Martin Luther, he once said, the kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. He who wants to be among friends and sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people. Well, if Christ had done what you were doing, who would ever have been spared? And I think he's right. And we see this as clear as day in here in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. You see, we're not to be terrified of the world, or even, Paul says, to judge it, believe it or not. Uh, he says in no uncertain terms in 12 and 13, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? That's not my job. Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. Don't worry about the immorality out there. That's a given in the fallen world. God will deal with that in good time. No, our job is to judge inside the church. And we see this as we go on to chapter 6 next week. There's little bits here that kind of hang over. Now remember, this isn't the the sheep and goats final judgment he's talking about. Uh, This is about discernment. So our job is to judge inside the church in the sense of making discerning calls, to, to identify someone who is clearly unrepentant. And Paul finishes today's passage then with these extremely strong words, expel the wicked person from among you. It's really scary. This whole sermon, it's, it's very weighty because I think these words are weighty. It's very firm. When we see this sort of church discipline, um, dare I say, we're kind of scared of it. But it is absolutely necessary on rare occasions. Once again, for the protection of the flock and for the good of the sinner. So as we finish up, I want to cast our minds forward. I want to ask just a simple question. What did happen to this sinner in 1 Corinthians 5? And here I want to show you that the Corinthian church, they took sin more seriously than perhaps you may have first thought. Now, no church is perfect, uh, and if you're looking for the perfect church, my advice to you uh, in love would be don't join that church. Uh, And the reason is because you would ruin it. You see, this might come as a shock to some of you, but you're a sinner. You're a sinner in need of salvation. And the reality is that the church is full of sinners in need of salvation. There, There is no such thing as a perfect church. And so the church everyone should be looking for instead is one which takes sin seriously. And so if we look ahead uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we get a glimpse of a man punished and reconciled. Now, I'm not going to say this is the same man mentioned here. There are some hints to that. We're not really sure, but it is a very similar case. And what this shows us is that the goal uh, of all church discipline is to bring the person back. Paul writes, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. 
the punishment inflicted on him, that is the sinner, the punishment inflicted upon him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And I urge you, therefore, reaffirm your love for him. This passage shows us clear as day that the end goal of church discipline is to bring someone to repentance, which means that forgiveness, comfort, and love should all be waiting those who repent. This is the church that we should be seeking to be, one that takes sin seriously, so seriously, in fact, that we will remove the unrepentant sinner from the flock if it comes to that, not as a declaration of eternal punishment, remember that's for God to decide, but to protect the flock and for the discipline, hopefully, for the reunion of the sinner. You see, we must be a church that is not only ready to judge in some sense, but is also ready to genuinely forgive. A church that is genuinely ready to forgive in full. We're to be a church who comforts the forgiven sinner and welcomes them and reaffirms our love for them. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it is something we're called to do. And the reason is that ultimately, well, this is all of us. The reality is that that we have sinned against a holy and righteous and just God. We told him to take a back seat. We told him we know what sin is and we know what righteousness is and we will define that for ourselves. And this is something we've been doing as far back as Genesis 3. But Christ, our Passover lamb, he was sacrificed for us. His blood was shed for our sins. The blood, as we looked at tonight, of a new and better covenant which offers free and full forgiveness, eternal comfort and steadfast love. So why don't we pray uh, and ask God's help for us to live lives that honour God's goodness to us as a gathering. Heavenly Father, help us uh, please this evening to take sin seriously. Help us to take it seriously in our own lives, but also in the gathering of your people. Help us to have the courage not only to identify our sins, but to do something about it. That by the strength of your spirit and the renewal of our minds, that we would cast off the cravings of the flesh and be made holy, just as you are holy. Lord, strengthen and protect your church. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.